you're leading teams of people and there's hierarchy to that. And that that's not much different than any sort of company. So whether I'm the chef or the CEO, it's really one and the same. Um, the titles are, are certainly the same in, in, in the way that they are. But that also means that you've got to bring in people who are not going to say yes to you. Um, and so as a chef, you've got to learn that people will say no to you, which can be hard. Right. Uh, but those but those no people are thoughtful. And so you want to bring in you want to bring in leaders that perhaps have skills that are better than you at, at what it is that you do. And I can tell you the group who work with me in my headquarters office, each one of them individually have an incredible asset that they bring to the company. And when they bring forward their ideas, whether I agree with them or not, I don't even know if I would even think about them that way. Every amazing flavor is an amazing human who has perfected their craft. Welcome to Flavors Unknown, a series of inspirational conversations with renowned culinary leaders. Discover how their cultural identity shapes their creative process with your host, Emmanuel. Welcome back to the Flavors Unknown podcast. Every other week, we uncover the fascinating stories behind the world's most innovative chefs. I am Emmanuel Roche, your host and guide throughout this flavorful journey. I have been in the food industry for more than 20 years, both in Europe and in the US. And every other week, I have genuine conversations with chefs, pastry chefs, and mixologists from around the country. Today, I am thrilled to welcome Chef Gavin Kaysen an award-winning chef and a visionary in the Minneapolis dining scene with restaurants like Spoon and & Stable and Demi. Chef Kaysen's journey is a remarkable tale of passion and creativity influenced by his friend and mentor, the legendary chef Daniel Bouloud. We will talk about mentorship and leadership principles that resonate across various industries. In this episode, we'll also explore his personal culinary reflections in his acclaimed cookbook, At Home. Let's dive into the flavorful conversation and explore the unknown with Chef Kevin Kaysen. Hi, Chef. How are you? Welcome to uh, Flavors Unknown. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. Thank you. Thank you for your time again. And yeah, so let's dive like you know, into it. So I just want to come back a little bit to, you know, the early influences. And if you could share with us, you know, your upbringing and the family of cooks and bakers, you know, in Bloomington, Minnesota, and, you know, how this early environment, you know, cultivated like your love for cooking. Sure. Yeah. So, you know, neither one of my parents per se were great cooks, but my grandmother, on the other hand, was a phenomenal, phenomenal cook and baker. And so I found myself early on at the age of seven baking a lot with her. And then and then as that sort of gravitated towards more cooking, we, we started to do more savory. So she was really a strong influence for me when I was when I was a young child. And, you know, it's funny looking back now, thinking about what inspired me then with that process was just knowing how, in many ways, how simple and also how natural it felt for me to bake or even cook savory food and how that would just bring people together at a table. It felt very, felt very natural. And it was also very gratifying to know that you were, that you were fulfilling people and nourishing them through food by way of what you had created. Yeah. And you remember like maybe like a dish that, you know, you love that she was um, making or you, that you, you baked with her. 
Yeah, well, she was always really, her chicken and dumplings was a favorite. Her pot roast was a favorite. We used to do these, these cookies called sunbuckles. All three of those recipes you can actually find in my in cookbook book, at yeah. home. Yeah, and, and, you know, it's a tribute to her. I mean, I talk about her in the book about all that. So those recipes stand out very very aggressively in my memory as, as they were often Sunday night meals. Okay. And can you share like any food or smell from the childhood that, that continues to inspire you beyond those like three recipes that you're talking about? You know, it's funny. I, I, I would say it's less food that, that, that brings me back to my childhood on smell and more the smell of the seasons. When, when, it's, when it's sort of that early fall and you can smell that autumn in the air and then how, how you kind of gravitate towards what you want to cook when it's that autumn food. And, and, you know, like right now, you know, when it's winter and it's cold and brisk and snowing and dark at four o'clock. And, you know, so it's actually more seasonal to me that, that, that reminds me of the smells and the tastes of where I go. Okay. So how was your time in, in uh, New York City, you know, working with uh, under Daniel Boulud and, you know, how it shaped your, your culinary, you know, philosophy, I would say? Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, working for him was very much my PhD in this business. You know, prior to that, I mean, I was in San Diego in 2005 and I had written him a letter to go do a, to do a study in his kitchen. And I'd written, I'd read his book, Letters to a Young Chef. And I remember saying to my wife at the time, I really want to work for him. And, you know, it's just so funny. Ten years later, I end up not only working for him, but then I end up actually writing, like rewriting a chapter in his book, Letters to a Young Chef. And so when he, when he rewrote it as a second edition. How, how was that feeling? I mean, it's, it's amazing. You know, it was a full circle moment. I'm, my chapter was on discipline. And, you know, I think, it's, I think it's just incredible that, you know, somebody like Danielle, who has a tremendous resume and pedigree, and he's got great mentees who have worked for him and gone off and done remarkable things and built small to larger empires on their own. You know, he still stays in touch with everybody. He's got a great, op- he's got a great gift of, of connectivity. And not only him staying connected with you, but him connecting you with others. You know, it's a really, it's, it's a really important gift. And, you know, what's interesting is like that connectivity that he has, it's very genuine. And it's always been like that. He's always been that way. And he's always been so curious. So I think for me, working for him, you know, really taught me the power of how to stay curious and what that means, you know, and, and ultimately, it really means you're not settling for anything that you've achieved so far. You know, you're still out there exploring, trying to figure out what it is that you can get, what it is that, that is going to help, you know, set your restaurant apart a little bit more from somebody else's restaurant. And you're always out there striving to become better than who you were the day before. Okay. So that's one of the main things that you learned from, from him. Are there any other things that you came to mind when you think about this, I don't know, either from a cooking skill sets or, you know, or leadership, you know, style? When I started with him, he had four restaurants. When I left, he had 18. So, you know, it was, it was remarkable to be involved and, and so closely tied to an organization that had such tremendous growth. And by the way, very successful growth. So to be able to watch what it looked like to mentor, you know, young cooks throughout my kitchen who would then go off and become sous chefs and chefs for him and his kitchens in the future... That helped really teach me a style that I've carried throughout my career as well. Okay. And it was like during the time that you were there that you won like the Michelin star, correct? And chef de cuisine at the Café Bouloud. And then you were named as well the rising star for the James Beard Award. So how, how was yeah. that experience? 
Well, the James Beard Award, that was, you know, the first year I worked for him. So I was 28 and it was, yeah, it was my first, first full calendar year of working for him. And I, and I, and I got that award, you know, it was always a goal of mine to get it at the time. You could only get that award being under the age of 30. They've now changed, I think not only the rule, but also maybe the title of the award. I don't know exactly, but they've changed it now. So you don't have to be under the age of 30 anymore, which is great. But at that time you had to be the under, under the age of 30. So it was always like the time when the clock was ticking. Yeah. It was even more pressure. Yeah. Yeah. It was a lot more pressure, I think. And, and it felt, and you always felt that, that pressure, but I didn't believe, I didn't know that I was even a part of the running. In fact, what's funny is that Eric Repair from Le Bernardin lived in a building that I lived in in New York as well. And so the day that I was nominated for the for the James Beard Award, I came home from work and I walked into the elevator and I heard the front door open behind me. So I just held the elevator for whomever it was. And it was Eric. And he walked into the elevator and I said, oh, chef, my name's Gavin Case. I'm the chef at Cafe Blue. He says, no, no, no. I know who you are. We've met once before. And I said, you're right. I just didn't. I wanted to reintroduce myself. And as he's getting out of the elevator, he turns around. And he says, I voted for you today. Good luck. I hope you win. <laughs> and. You know, I, I got off the I got off off the elevator to my to my apartment, and I said to my wife, I said, "Well, even if I lose, I said, I yeah, I can guarantee that both Danielle Balut and Eric Repair voted for me for that." So that says something. Exactly, <laughs> that's a nice story, you know, for sure. So now, in fact, you have as well, you know, hospitality group, you know, on your own, like the Soignier Hospitality Group. So, what element did you take from? The empire from Bouloud, you know, in the, in in New York, and and I would say leverage and apply to you know to your hospitality group. Yeah, a couple of things. I mean, you know, one is patience, you know, and and the other one's probably a bit of persistence. You know, I think often when you're building, when you build one restaurant, you want to achieve success with that one restaurant. That doesn't necessarily mean that it should or it needs to lead you to two restaurants. What ends up leading you more often than not to do two restaurants is that a couple of things. One, you start getting deals thrown at you that can be a little bit too hard to say no to. And secondly, you start to see your team develop in a way that shows you that they're ready to take on something else. And so a bit of your growth becomes a, a kind of a, an, ex, an external experience from how you expect it to grow because that growth can happen as quickly or as slowly as you want it to happen. And I think often I tell myself and I tell others, it's okay to say no to a deal, even if it's too good or even if it's really good to be true, because you close the door, there's three more that are going to open when you turn around. And so it's good to be patient. It's good to find the right opportunity for you. It's good to find the right like brand cohesion. And I really learned that from Danielle, just sort of find those different opportunities. Okay. Is it as well, you know, in a group where it's the possibility to give opportunities, you know, from people from like the different restaurants that are part of your group? And in order to give them like kind of a, a, a growth path, yeah, I mean certainly, you know, I mean we've had, we've had people who've worked for us, you know, every, from sous chefs up to, you know, we had a sous chef who worked for us who was then our chef de cuisine for Demi, which is our twenty seat fine dining restaurant, and he just left us. He just left our group. He's been with us for maybe seven seven years, close to seven years, and so he and his wife are opening their own restaurant now. And so, you know, of course, they're doing it on their own. They're finding their funding, but but we're at we're here as 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 mentors and to help guide them whatever questions that they may have as they go through this process. And it's 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 that's the way it should be. You know, I think that our profession is very misunderstood in that 
when somebody works for you for a long time and then they go and they leave to open up their own business, people from the outside see that as a negative. And they think that something then is going to change internally in the business or that competition is somehow going to breed you know, frustration. And in fact, it's always the opposite. I mean, most of the time when you get to a level that they're at when they're ready to leave, they're typically not the ones making your food every night. And they might not even be the ones plating your food every night. They've in fact created a system, you know, so successful that they're able to remove themselves and replace themselves with somebody else without skipping a beat. Then when they go off to create their own restaurant, you want them to take everything that they've learned from you in order to build what it is that they see as success, whatever that might be. There's a different train of thoughts that you see in the industry where you feel people being frustrated because they have trained and shaped, you know, like, you know, a new generation, you know, of chefs and they see them leaving. And there's a lot of negative connotation to this. So I'm very pleased to hear like a different sound, you know, of, of the story with what you just described. It's pretty interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I listen, I think that if, if in fact you're training somebody and you're putting all that energy and they never, and they, and they never leave, that says something too. <laughs> I mean, we have our, for example, our executive chef of the, of the group, his name is Chris Nye. You know, Chris has been with me since day one, but he's now a partner in our company, you know? So instead of him leaving, we, we would rather fold him into our equation, which is different because he's worked so hard to help create the systems with us that he deserves to, to relish in the success of the space. And I think that, I think that our profession has changed a lot in the last 10 or 15 years. I mean, I can tell you, you know, when I left Danielle to move back to Minneapolis to my own restaurant, I mean, Danielle is a business partner of mine. You know, I once got paid by him as an employee. And when I left, he invested in my company. So it's, you sort of see that tide changing. I mean, I don't know how many mentors turn around and say, I'm going to invest in my mentee. You know, that's an honorable, that's an honorable way to continue a legacy in this profession. So you have like two hats, correct? You have the hat of a chef and then you have the hat of the CEO, you know, for the hospitality group. So how do you manage these uh, dual roles? Yeah, I mean, I think part of it is a bit of a, a bit of a, a identity complexity when you think about it, because, you know, I'm in a chef coat right now, but I'm certainly not in a kitchen. In fact, I'm sitting in my in my in my library in my office. But but today, you know, tonight I'll go back down and I'll start to I'll start to cook and and be with the team. You know, it's it is always it's always hard to sort of go from one role to the other because you need to kind of take a step back and they certainly use different parts of your brain. But for me, I love it. I mean, I think it's a really, you know, I have I have found to not only accept that, you know, part of my strength is the CEO side as well as the cooking, but it's about leadership. It's about, you know, leading a company and leading a business towards profitability because ultimately that profitability is, is dependent on people who work for you. And so you need to be able to carry that. So talking about leaderships, how would you describe your leadership style? You know, I would probably describe it as both collaborative and also disciplined, you know, I, I, I and that's probably more within myself. I say disciplined. I think that once, People see me disciplined that way. They, off, they often react that way and, and become the same way. You know, being, being professional in what we do, you know, I, I do not look at what we do as an industry, even though it's called that. I look at it as, as, I look at it as a profession. 
whether we're whether I'm wearing a chef coat or not, I mean, I can tell you, I press all of my chef coats every Sunday. I make sure that they they look as crisp as a business suit would look. And so, to me, it is a profession. And I think by using that, that but by by sharing that and using that mentality with my team, I hope that it continues to give them a great sense of pride in what it is they do every day. What are like the the values that are behind this uh, world word that you mentioned of being like this is a profession so what what does that mean to you if you you want to further develop that thought well i mean i think that you know we we are a profession in the fact that we're we work hard at a craft certainly at what we do every single day you're leading teams of people often large teams of people and there's hierarchy to that you know and so And that, that's not much different than any sort of company, right? So whether I'm the chef or the CEO, it's really one and the same. The titles are, are certainly the same in, in, in the way that they are. But that also means that you've got to bring in people who are not going to say yes to you. And so as a chef, you've got to learn that people will say no to you, which can be hard, right? But those, but those no people are thoughtful. And so you want to bring in you want to bring in leaders that perhaps have skills that are better than you at, at what it is that you do, which really then sort of develops and rounds out the group of people that you're with. I mean, I can tell you the group who work with me in my headquarters office, each one of them individually have an incredible asset that they bring to the company. And when they bring forward their ideas, whether I agree with them or not, I don't even know if I would even think about them that way. And so it's just even going down that path allows me to open up my my vision and my peripheral vision to say, oh, that is a really interesting way to think about it. I probably wouldn't have gone to that that way, but maybe that's only because I'm thinking about it as a chef, right? And but, but if I take a step back, now how am I really thinking about it holistically as a company? How do I think about it holistically as we grow and what does our group look like? And what is the benefit of adding this or having this, you know, not having that? I mean, we have an organization called Heart of the House, which is a nonprofit organization. And You know, that was developed during COVID, but we still have kept it and we still give donations to it and find donations. And, and, uh, you know, we grant, we grant money to our, our team members past, present and future, you know, if they're in a bit of a bind, you know, because you don't know what people are up to and, and, and it's not, it's not our responsibility. It's not our responsibility to turn our backs on that. It's our responsibility to actually face that and help them out. You know, listening to you before, it was interesting. You know, I work in, in corporate environments and I'm in charge of marketing, you know, for international group. And when I hear you talking, I see a very similar situation to my world and almost less to what my brain, you know, think about what, you know, maybe being like a, you know, having a, a group of restaurants and, and looking back at what was like the French brigade style, which, you know, is sometime closer to the military, military style, which is interesting to hear is in fact that what you are describing is almost fostering the possibility for people to express their thoughts and as well having thoughts different than yours and almost like having like a healthy uh, conflict, you know, and, and, and being uh, able for people to, to express their viewpoint, which is very far from the image that people may have, you know, from a, a restaurant empire. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I agree. I mean, I think, I think what's important to, to recognize too, though, is that the French brigade system, which as you mentioned, was very sort of militant in how, in how you were trained and raised. To, if you take apart the, if you peel that, if you peel that onion layer a couple of times, you know, what is that system really teaching us? It's really teaching us a sense of discipline, right? 
giving us an opportunity to perfect a craft in each one of the stations that we're supposed to perfect before we become a sous chef or a chef de cuisine of a kitchen. And so, you know, we have to be a little bit careful in how we present ourselves to team members because, and what we're trying to create, because if you don't have, if you don't have discipline, French brigade system or not, if you don't have the discipline, you end up getting younger cooks who come up and say, well, I've worked on the garmage station for four months. I'm ready to move on. And it's like, but are you, do, do you really feel as though you've, you've perfected that, that part of the station? Because if you have, you know, then you're ready to move on, but you're not there yet to sort of tell, tell us if you're ready for that. We're there to tell you. And so, yes, I want to foster, I want to foster people to be, to give an opinion and I want to hear what it is that they think, but I need for them to understand that discipline is what will get them where they want to go. You know, curiosity and questioning will get them there as well, but it's just a different path. And so, you know, you almost kind of want to like meld, mold together the two, the two, you know. But I, I think as well that your leadership, you know, style is different from someone who works at a station. He's a cook versus the people that report directly to, to you and then are executive chefs, correct? So that's a completely different management style between, you know, the different le level. So let's, let's talk a little bit about the, you know, the different restaurants that you have. And, and there's quite a bit. So I, I don't think that we will cover all of them, but obviously we, we need to talk about spoon and stable. So can you talk to us a little bit the, you know, the, the food concepts or the vision behind it? Yeah. So spoon, it's, it's, it's nine years old now. We just passed our ninth birthday and we're going to go into a, a bit of a refresh on, on the space this January, close down for a couple of weeks and just sort of refresh it. You know, it's, I would call Spoon an upscale American restaurant, you know, and, and I don't use the word bistro or brasserie for a reason because American and bistro, it doesn't make a ton of sense. The French make bistros, Americans make restaurants. You know, it's, it's, it has always been a dream of mine to build a restaurant that has a place where you feel like it's the right place to be. You know, food is really, really important and it brings people together. But the energy of the space, the lighting, the noise level, the music, the ambiance, that's what keeps people coming back to a restaurant, the service. You know, so we care deeply about our hospitality program. We care deeply about how we make our guests feel, which means we care deeply about how we make each other feel. You know, happiness is an important attribute to have when you work in this profession. If you're a miserable human being, work's going to suck for a while. And for a long while until you leave it, you know, so I think that it's, it's really, it's really been a blessing to be able to have a restaurant like Spoon. You know, we opened up uh, in a neighborhood that wasn't very busy at the time. It's now a very busy neighborhood and has a lot of restaurants on the street, which is great. I adore having that competition close to us. I think it's important to, to keep everybody on their toes, but more so it's important for the guests to be able to walk around and see the variety. Okay, so how do you stay always on top of like, you know, like innovation or, you know, renew the, the menu after you, you're talking about nine years, almost celebrating 10 years here soon? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, honestly, I, I don't look at it as a, as a staying up to anything. I think it, it's more about staying true to who we were, who we are, right? And I think, I think those values of who we are, you know, do we make delicious food? Do we give warm and genuine hospitality on a nightly basis you know are we are we 
achieving opportunities of success for our guests that they didn't anticipate to have? You know, are we giving them majestic, majestic moments of hospitality that they didn't know existed around the corner? And if we're doing those things, then we're doing the things right. I think that the difficulty in trying to always become a people pleaser is that you're actually never going to please anybody. So it's not about that. It's more what we know works within our space and kind of what we've become known for. And, you know, when you build restaurants, it's funny because when you build them, you know, you have a business plan, you have an idea, you have a vision, and all of it stays there. But over time, what ends up sort of crafting and molding that vision into what it ends up becoming is not only the people who work there every day with you, but then the guests who often frequent there. You know, you're listening to them, you're, you're, you're absorbing what it is that they said that they love, what it is that they say they don't love. Uh, you're making it small little adjustments based on, on the consistency of that feedback every time somebody gives you that feedback. And Spoon's been a fun restaurant to have. Yeah. And do you change the menu regularly or this is like all dishes that you are, you know, constantly rotating or how, how what's the approach? I mean... Yeah, I mean, we change it. We change the dishes. We change the menu seasonally. There are a couple of dishes that have always stayed on the menu since we opened because there would be a riot if we took them off. Okay. Yes. Yeah. And it's not many. It's just a few, a few dishes here. Okay. So where do you draw your uh, creative inspiration for new dishes, you know, at, um, at your restaurants? Yeah, I mean, a lot of it is, again, you know, I work with our chef team. I mean, Chris, who's our chef at Spoon and, and our chef to Cuisine, Ben, and the sous chefs that have worked with us. I think part of fostering their talent is also, you know, help, helping them think about menu items as we think about them together. You know, often if you give a young cook an opportunity to create a new pork dish, you know, they'll come to you with 55 ingredients and you have to edit it down to say, you know, you could do seven. And it's really delicious with seven ingredients. And that's part of our job. So we sort of have a base of where we want to be. We put ourselves in a bit of a creative box and say, here's the flavor profile of where we're going with this dish. Let's all start to think of it together. And I think having those conversations ultimately breed creativity. Okay. So there's another place that you want to, you know, to maybe highlight the part of the group? Sure, yeah. Yeah, I mean, Demi, Demi is, our, is our little flagship fine dining restaurant. It's 20 seats. And, it, you know, it's a tasting menu-only format. I open five nights a week. That menu changes every month. Tons of creativity in that space. Tons of collaboration with the whole team in creating that space. The, the servers are the chefs. The chefs are the servers. We also have a service team that is there to set, reset, clear, pour wine, talk about wine, make cocktails. But it's really sort of this, this beautiful restorative experience that we try to create for our guests. Okay. And is this concept as well, the one in Spoon and Table, like leveraging like produce, you know, from local farmers and providers? Yeah. 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 I mean, yeah, as much as we can, right? I mean, in the winter months, it can be a little bit more difficult. We got to be, we have to be more thoughtful of where we get things, you know, but certainly, you know, local is the way to go, especially where we are when it comes to proteins and certain vegetables certain times a year but the truth of the matter is you know we want if we watch seafood we got to we got to go to the coast for the seafood sure. we're pretty landlocked you know so so we're we're thoughtful about what that looks like and we sort of lean into what it is that that we know our community can do great at okay and talking about community so how would you describe your your involvement in the, in the local community project yeah i mean i'm super involved in the community you know there's so much I, I, I grew up here, so, you know, I left and then came back. And so I have a lot of, 
I have a lot of history in this community. I have a lot of roots here. You know, I'm grateful to raise my family here and I have three boys. So that's, that keeps me very, very busy with all of them, but it's, it's super fun. How old are they? 14, 11, and 17 months. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> you have your hands full. <laughs> your yeah, yeah. As well. Okay. So how would you like to, you know, like, how do you explore and, and educate and inspire your staff, you know, on, you know, on the, on, and especially on the issues that are the current issues of community engagement and sustainability, you know, in the industry? Sure. Yeah, I mean, you know, we do, we do, and we have an effort here called the Synergy Series. It's a dinner series we've done every year for the last six years. So we bring in four chefs from around the country. First year we did it, our chefs, I think, let's see, it was Michael White, Michael Anthony from Gramercy Tavern, April Bluefield, Danielle Balud. We've had Grant Ackett, Dominique Crenn, Sean Brock, Jeremy Fox, Thomas Keller, you know, you name it. We've had some incredible chefs here. And so when we have them here, they do two dinners with us on a Thursday night and a Friday night. And then Friday during the day, we do a dialogue conversation with them. A friend of mine, her name's Allison Arth. She has a company called Salt and Row, and she helps moderate this, this, this dialogue. And what's really exceptional is it's $10 to, to go in. We give 100% of the $10 to a charity, a local charity typically. It's during the middle of the day, early part of the day, which means mostly, most of the time industry folks can come, not only my team, but from around the community. And, you know, you listen to everything that those chefs have gone through. And I think a lot of the common thread between most of the chefs that are of that success is success never happened overnight. And as much as people wrote about it happening that way, it didn't happen that way. And, and so when you hear somebody who is as successful as they are, such as Michael Salamanoff and Zahav in Philly, and you listen to his story about addiction and his heroin use and how, how much that just really, really captivated his life, changed his life for the better, you know, it's a remarkable reminder for people to walk out and to say, look, if I'm quietly in that issue right now, there's an out and I can get out and I see what out like because I just watched him talk for an hour. Let's talk about your, your book. So at home. So what's what inspired you to create your book and you know talking about you know established obviously such successful you know restaurants that you have and so I am I'm just curious about what was the inspiration behind it. Yeah so you know when COVID hit we needed to find a way to make payroll. And so one of my colleagues suggested that I do some online cooking classes and we charge people for those classes. And so we did the first class and, you know, I think we made like 4,000 bucks and I was so happy because I could make payroll that week. And then, and then shortly thereafter, you know, we were, we were doing upwards of 1500 to 2000 people a class. And the first class had 150 people on it. And so our, our numbers were changing and what we were making was changing. And, and, you know, we got done with doing a lot of classes and we were able to reopen. And at that time, I think we had 60 or 70 recipes that were not only tested by me in front of people, but they were tested with people live. And we had all of their questions during this process of like, how do I peel a shallot? You know, what do I do with this? How do I do that? You know, questions that, frankly, as a professional chef, I don't even think about asking because it's too intuitive. But I understand as a home cook, there's an intimidation factor when you look at certain ingredients, you're like, what do I do with fennel? <laughs> you know, what do I do with rutabaga? What do I do with a parsnip? And why does it taste this way? And so it was a great opportunity for me to teach people how to cook this food at home. And it's genuinely recipes that I do cook at home. 
often, very often. And so we, we developed a cookbook out of it. It's been, it's been a joy. We're on, we're on our third print now, oh, wow. uh, All right. which is incredible to, to see. And so it's been great. Okay. So, so how do you, how do you approach cooking at home differently from, you know, cooking at, at your restaurant? I don't know if I necessarily approach it too differently, except for the fact that I try to make sure to finish without having too many dishes, <laughs> right? Because I'm gonna, I'm, I'm in charge of yeah. having to probably do some of those dishes, not all of them, but at least some of them. And again, you know, I have three three boys at home, and and of all ages, and they can eat, and they're hungry, and they want to move on with their night. So I would say that I, I become a really good short order cook at home versus when I'm in the restaurants, maybe a little bit, maybe you got to need to cook a little faster there. Okay. But you still cook at home, which is interesting because there's some chefs, oh, yeah. you know, so said, no, okay, I cook at a restaurant, but not, not at home. No, I love, yeah, I love to cook at home. It's very peaceful for me. Okay. So it's kind of a um, form of meditation for you. Very much. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Interesting. So that's another podcast. <laughs> the- <laughs> So talking about your project, so you were mentioning, you know, you're just celebrating nine years and then there's going to be obviously the 10 years anniversary coming. So do you have any projects here or anything planned for Spoon and Table? I mean, there's nothing there's nothing planned now per se, but we'll do a 10-year party, I'm sure, for the restaurant once we get once we get going. You know, and, and right now it's like, you know, we've got Spoon and Stable, we've got Demi, we have Mara inside of the Four Seasons, Soka Cafe in the Four Seasons and three Cook's Bell Quarters. I have a catering company called KZ Pro, so I'm 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 content with what I have, and and certainly willing and excited to grow and to do more. But at this point, it's about finding the right opportunity that sort of matches, you know, what it is that I want to see happen and what voids I need to fill. Mm-hmm. So, with someone like yourself, you know, in the caliber that you have, uh, I want to ask you questions on like how, what's your take on the like, the future of food and. And uh, where do you see this whole culinary world going? I mean, it's really, it's, it's probably in a really, in a much brighter spot than it's been in the past. And I think we've ebbed and flowed a lot in the last probably five, six years. I think there's, there's no hiding the fact that, that chefs wear less chef coats than they did before. <laughs> right. And so we're getting away from a bit of that formality and moving a bit of that to that casual side of yep. things which means it'll probably come back at some point again because everything sort of comes back yeah. and that pendulum will swing and that's okay. You know, I, I, I think, again, it's like it's less about what it is you think is going to happen. Like if you're a chef out there and you're thinking, I want to open up a restaurant and I want to make sure I get an Esquire's top list or I want to be here or be that, it's like think more about what makes you happy, you know, and, and, and where, do, where do you find joy, when you're in your restaurant every night, you look out and you see the seats are full and people are excited to be there and they're happy and they're tasting and they're smiling and they're laughing and they're clinking the glasses. Like if that gives you a great sense of joy, do that, you know, and embrace that. Do you think that uh, fine dining is dead? Not even close. Okay. Can you, de- can you develop? Yeah. Well, I mean, I, first of all, I don't think anybody has a declaration of being able to say whether it's dead or not dead. I mean, I know Renee super well, and that was, I think that that was a, a silly remark. Marketing, <laughs> too, as well. I mean, sure, but that's what, that's what he's a genius at. You know, he's a genius at marketing, and, 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 and you know, it's, it's, it might be dead for him, and that's okay. But I don't, think, I, I don't think fine dining is dead. I think the question you have to ask is, what is fine dining? 
You know, to me, fine dining is a personalization of an experience. That doesn't mean it needs a tablecloth, right? It doesn't need, it means it doesn't need, need fancy flowers. And I don't need a waiter in a tuxedo, right? I need the person to know who I am when I sit down and I get the drink that I always get and it's put in front of me. That could be fine dining to some people. That could be an experience. I mean, the word restaurant comes from the word restoration to be restored. And so when you go out to eat, rather than going out to eat and finding yourself rating the experience, Go out to eat and see if you can find restoration through the experience. That's not on me as the chef. Unfortunately, that's on you as the guest. And so, you know, that's, that's a really important part of this aspect is that, you know, fine dining, casual dining, fast casual dining, whatever it is that you want, there'll always be a market for it. Just like there is in music and fashion, there's always markets for certain things. And, and so it's, it's, it's remarkable, remarkable to be able to watch it. I mean, I look at Demi, which is a very small fine dining restaurant in Minneapolis, and it's, and it's able to stay booked, which is remarkable to see. We're not in a huge community. But this is like a 20 seats, you said, correct? As well. Yeah. Yep. So, yep. so maybe there's an evolution as well in the fine dining that, you know, took place, you know, years back and where you had like a maybe, you know, 15 or 18 courses and now it's maybe you know a different scale too sure yeah yeah i mean i think people i think people certainly eat differently i think they certainly look at experiences differently and i think as a chef as a restaurateur you need to be able to understand where that is and meet them where they are respect the time that they have on a wednesday versus the time they have on a friday to dine with you Um, and 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 to be open to that you know it's as much as as much as the guest was supposed to always be right, you know, is not as to say the same as that the chef is always supposed to be right about how many courses you're supposed to have. <laughs> you know, so you got to kind of you got to kind of meet in the middle. Exactly. A little bit. Compromise, compromise. Make sure everybody walks away from the table a little bit. Unhappy. Very good. So let's switch with you know like the rapid fire question. So if we were to go uh, together on a tasting tour in Minneapolis, which um, five spots would you? be on your list or you will take me to that house of course outside of your hospitality group sure yeah i'd bring you to abangyoli it's a korean korean fried chicken uh spot that uh, an old an old chef used to work for me he he owns that it's fantastic uh quang which is a, a great pho it's been around forever it's family owned it's just sort of like hits the spot especially on a cold on a cold day uh, there's a restaurant in st paul called muriel uh, Karen Thompson's the chef. She's doing a tremendous job there, and I love her food and what she's able to produce. And then I would probably take you over to Mark Hugh has a beautiful pastry shop called Mark Hugh Patisserie. It's also in St. Paul, but that would be a great place to have for desserts. And then for pizza, I mean, you could go in. I mean, as sort of a casual pizza eater, there's a lot of different places to go. One of my favorites is close to my house called Red Wagon Pizza. Okay. What's your go-to guilty pleasure food? Oh, probably uh, Rice Krispie bars. I love Rice Krispie bars. <laughs> really? Okay. Oh, yeah. It's so good. <laughs> I was not expecting this. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's interesting. Can I tell you, it's funny because the last thing we serve you at Demi is a Rice Krispie bar straight out. Okay. Pot, right. <laughs> uh, any recent cookbook that you have caught your eyes and or inspired you? Mm, recently. Let me think. Well, I mean, I guess the only one that I got recently, I got Daniel Hume's newest one that he he just came out with, the Vegetable yeah, Block yeah, book. Yeah. Really, both, both. I mean, not surprisingly, it's a beautiful book. 
also not surprisingly, since I know him well as a dear friend, it's a really beautiful message and he conveys it well throughout the book. So it was, it was nice to see that. Okay. Biggest pet peeves in the kitchen. Well, towels folded incorrectly or not folded when placed on a table. Labeled tape not cut when you put it on plastic. Okay. So, you know, uh, we always meet people that always have great advice, but there's like, like what was like the worst advice that uh, you've heard given in the, in, in your industry? You know, I think the worst advice typically that I hear often is that people want to move too quickly. <laughs> you know, I, th I think it's, I think that, you know, they're so, they, they want, they want, they're so dependent on getting a title. Uh-huh. And, and that title, that title you'll learn does not fill any void because if you don't actually know how to do what the title says you're supposed to do, it actually eats you up even more. Uh, and so I've run into cooks who have worked for me who have had very successful titles and have come back to work for us to say, I shouldn't be in that role yet. I don't know enough to be in that oh, role wow. yet. I'd like to stay here and work for you and learn more and develop my, my, my foundation better. And then one day I can be ready for that role. Okay. Looking back, what's the best or the most worthwhile investment that you have made in your restaurants? Probably the infrastructure of having a group of both hospitalitarians, but also executive leaders that work with me every day who are there to help develop, retain, listen to, and talk to the team. You know, and, and I say that because, you know, as a CEO and as a chef, you know, you can't do it all. So you need to be able to not only find the right people to help you with, with it, but you need to be able to trust them the way that they trust you. And you have to reciprocate in that. And I think that once I was able to develop a team of people around me who, who I believe in so, so wholeheartedly to help me run this company, it's just made my life better uh -huh. as a, because I know that if we make mistakes, we'll collectively learn how to fix it together. It's not on any one person when that mistake is made. And when we create success, I know that success is felt by everybody and it's reverberated throughout the company. And that to me is one of the best feelings. I forgot to ask you, how many people do you have in working in your group? Yeah, we're a little bit over 130 okay. people now. Okay. So my last question for you is, you know, you talk about a lot of collaboration dinners and a lot of people that you have invited cooking with you. If you have still like a chef that you dream of collaborating with, who would it be? Oof. You know, I would love to get Claire Smith over here from CORE in London. Uh, Claire, I know Claire well. She's amazing. And, I, and I, I just have to ask her to do it, of course. And once I find the right time, I will. I'll forward her this podcast and say, hey. <laughs> here you go. Listen to, listen to the 43rd minute. And, uh, <laughs> yes. uh, 43rd. You know. Yes, exactly. 43rd minute. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, then, and, then you, and then you'll know that the, the ask is out there publicly. No, but, but I'm inspired by her. You know, I really, I really admire, I admire her discipline. I admire her expertise. I admire her resilience and her persistence. I know the kitchens that she was raised in and the people that she worked with well. And I think it's remarkable to see what it is that she's created and built and not only once in London, but, you know, she's also in Sydney and to be able to do that in two different parts of the world is, Impressive. it's hard as hell. Yeah. Chef, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for thank you. wanting to be, you know, a guest on the on the show. I appreciate it. My pleasure. What an incredible conversation with Chef Gavin Kaysen. 
his insights into the culinary world, his passion for creative, memorable dining experiences, and his commitment to community and sustainability are truly inspiring. If you have enjoyed today's episode, please share it with anyone you know who is passionate about food or based in the Minneapolis area. They are in for a real treat. And don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter for exclusive content and updates. Just visit our website, flavorsunknown.com. Thank you for joining us on Flavors Unknown. I am Emmanuel Roche, your host, and I look forward to bringing more extraordinary stories from the culinary world in our next episode. Stay curious and keep exploring those flavors unknown. And until then, keep in mind that the people who likes to eat are always the best people. Thanks for listening to Flavors Unknown. If you've enjoyed this episode, give us a follow on Instagram at flavorsunknown and visit us at flavorsunknown.com. Don't forget to leave us a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts.